0: Welcome to the Writer's Room, where funny writers who sit in funny rooms and write funny words for other people finally get to talk. Here's your host, me, Jeff Cicero. Ladies and gentlemen, the incredible Ed Yeager is with us. Uh, you may know him from uh, uh, everything from Dharma and Greg up to Last Man Standing and everything in between, and a little bit of acting. Uh, Ed, how are you today? You've got a some sort of a tropical... You Have a weak tropical live plant and then like a bath towel. Looks like well, the,
1: the plant came from IKEA and it was like two inches tall when I got it two years ago. So you look at it now, yeah. I uh, the you've uh, the mural <laughs> I stole from my last show, it was um, they used it uh. They used it in a scene, nice. and I I asked the producer if I could have it for my office. He let me use it. I took it with me when I left. Jeff? Yeah. You know there's
0: nothing wrong in that. And I think for everybody listening on uh, the writer's room here, that's good advice. Just take everything you can from your office when you leave, whether stuff. it's uh, amicable or you've been fired.
1: Pencils, uh this I did not buy these scissors. The the show bought these scissors. I, I just took it, man. I took it. You're a rebel. Come get me, Fox. Come get me. I probably shouldn't say that because they will come get me. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, even know. small victories for them are needed right now. So uh, they'll hey, probably do uh so we're gonna talk all the sitcom stuff, and you've worked at virtually every level <laughs> from story editor up to executive producer in a ton of rooms, and yes. we'll dive into that. But we gotta start with stand-up. You started as a yeah. stand-up. I started as a stand-up, and if I may take just a minute, my best memory was coming through Denver on my way to Los Angeles.
1: I'm, I'm pre-cringing uh, in because my AMC
0: Gremlin. I remember the Gremlin who headline the Denver okay. Comedy Works. Now, right. folks, back then Denver had a uh, a similar scene to Minneapolis. That's where I was coming from, in that it was small but mighty. They had tremendous comics there. Any headliner who came through, they would throw on Thursday or Wednesday, whatever began the week, six of these people in front of you, 20 minutes each. So you're two hours into the show when the headliner comes up. And it was a great cutting ground. It was a great way to test a headliner to see if they actually had what it took to headline Uh, And because there I mean, the Denver scene was led by, of course, Roseanne, but everybody else from Ed to Matt Berry to Vince Curran to John Paul to Lewis Johnson Jr. There were there were name comics, value comics at virtually every position on in the club. And so when I went in, I somehow survived that first night. I did a good job. And then the week opens up to you. Everybody goes, all right, this guy can hack it. Let's have fun. So we got drunk and uh, then we went to a bar and then we decided, Ed, that that uh, we misread our body uh, information incredibly and we uh, decided we needed something to eat. <laughs> and we went to a place, I don't know why I remember this, El Chapultepec. And yes, <laughs> you sure, remember El Chapultepec? They had Still like jazz and food and booze. So we ate Mexican food there and listened to the jazz and drank more. And then it was time to go home. And because I was heading West, I had my gremlin with me and uh, I was driving. I don't know why. So I drove you home in Denver and we decided you and I that the gremlin fit better on the sidewalk than it did on the street. So the last block and a half to your place, we drove on the sidewalk in Denver.
1: <laughs> just to be just to be idiots?
0: Just yeah, rolling crazy. down our window and you were just saying things like, excuse us, it's really we're going very slowly. <laughs> <You would just laughs> and I couldn't stop laughing. It may be the hardest I've ever laughed in my life. That is uh that's <laughs>
1: how Ben that and I met. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Well, here's uh, let me let me respond to some of that, because first off, we it's not a court of law, but go ahead. (laughs) But but the Minneapolis, you know, we there we were in Denver doing our little thing and why the club insisted on putting five comics on before the headliner. I don't know, but I think they still do that to this day in Denver, which, you know, after I became a comic and went on the road and eventually started headlining. I used to think what what, a, what punishment for the guy coming in to headline the show to have to follow five people that are up doing their A material for 10 minutes each good lord it was so hard it was what a great
0: proving ground it really was it was like a test track and and I think if you couldn't get past that gauntlet you really weren't you know ready to headline It's that simple. You at least had to come out punching. I kind of loved it for that reason. And the other reason being, back then, it's different now. It really is. New comics have to deal with so much other stuff. They have to literally run their own social media, kind of manage themselves. There's so much to do. And time has mellowed everything. There's much less... F me, F you, fuck me, fuck you kind of, thing. there's much, I, you know, when you or I would walk into a club in 87, you would have to go, okay, I'm as funny as anybody in this room. That's the way you had to think in order to survive. I, I don't think right. that is necessary anymore. There's so much diversity in comedy in terms of styles of comedy, let alone oh, people. That's cool. Yeah. But back uh, then I thought it was useful.
1: The other thing about uh, you know when uh, we there we were in Denver, this island in the middle of nowhere, doing our little comedy, and little by little, uh, you know, we would get introduced to other comics from other cities. And Minneapolis was one of the first ones because Louis came through early on,
0: right? Louis and Anderson.
1: Louis, Louis was of course beloved immediately, and right. uh, then he ushered in yeah. the rest of the Minnesota, or the uh, yeah Minnesota guys, yeah, and and this. The scene you guys had there was way more professional than our scene. You had Dudley Riggs, who was just—I'd uh, never met the guy, but it seemed he seemed to create um, uh, a uh, an atmosphere there that was that was really professional. You couldn't. Well, just he did.
0: He was all improv until Louis sweet talked him into doing stand-up at one of his theaters while the road company was out touring. That's how Dudley got into stand-up. The rest of it wow. made Denver look like Vegas. I mean, the rest of the stand-up scene in Minneapolis was the original club, Mickey Finn's, was in the steam fitters and pipe fitters building, union building. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then Scott Hansen opened a separate room on the south side of Tune, the ca- uh, south side of Minneapolis called the Cabaret, which still smelled a little bit like an auto garage. So you knew what they what it came from. So to hit a Denver with a stage and lights, and
1: <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I, I guess so, regardless, it was uh, it was so cool though in in the early eighties uh, and just everybody kind of starting to understand there's a, a bigger world out there and going to different clubs. I mean, I remember when Roseanne and I drove to Kansas City to work,
0: Master's uh, room, Stanford and Sons. Stanford. Stanford and right? son, The the coat yeah. closet. That little room upstairs.
1: <laughs> that little room upstairs. And Naster was the king of KC. Yeah. And he was a terrific act. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he had been a a uh, he had been a um, a clown or what not He had been both a clown and a top shelf
0: percussionist.
1: Percussionist and a juggler
0: so and, he, uh, and then he just wanted to do stand-up and he was he was excellent at that yeah. so he combined all of these and whatever sort of the crowd needed which on any given night in Kansas City could be any one of those three things
1: yeah
0: <laughs> he, no, had he was,
1: it in he space. was masterful the way he yeah. uh, the way he controlled an audience he was just great at it and his material I don't even remember his material but his his just his presence was yeah. was um, anyhow that's my way of saying that it, when people started coming to our club, uh, that's when we started realizing, Oh, there's a whole bunch of different styles and types out there. And, and uh, it's so when, you know, when you talk to anybody about stand up in the eighties, you think back on it and it was, it was great, but at the same time it was almost too easy because every club all of a sudden had one comedy club and they all had to hire comics and, you know, if you had 10 minutes, they would hire you to be an opening act. And Yeah,
0: there's and it's the anomaly instead of the norm. We didn't know when we were in it. But when you look back at the history of show business from vaudeville and previous, you probably all the way go all the way back to Shakespeare. The bottom line was put asses in the seats. That was the bottom line. And right. it then took over again, mid 90s when the sort of stand-up boom after about 20 years kind of began to peter out. But in that 20 years, it was so unusual and so precious in a way to right. have a club that just featured stand-ups. People would go to the club without knowing who was they were even going to see. Right. <laughs> so. So but they wanted to be there in a 20 year period. That was the oddity. And then when that kind of washed out and you had to go, oh, crap, man, I should get a mailing list of fans or something. I did. I miss it. How did
1: I, you know? It was, it was gone? But everybody that came to a club was so happy to be there because it was it was in the zeitgeist. It's what you did. If you could go to yeah. a comedy club and the audiences were just buzzing and they were so happy to be there and they were packed. And it, you know, I say that it was, it was like, you know, you could be like, hey, "What about these airports?" Laughter, 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 <laughs> laughter. No, am I right? <laughs> Jeez, they're crazy. Laughter, laughter. They just wanted to be a part of it so bad that that uh, a lot of people could get by with uh, shitty material like me. Uh, no. But it You're was right, also, right. Um, but what a time! I always describe it as yeah. it was like it was like popcorn because all of us, there were thousands of guys and and a handful of women. There were so few women in it, but but one by it was like popcorn because one by one the colonels you were standing there with, boom, would just get famous like Roseanne or uh, Louie or yeah. a. Whitney Brown or Dennis Miller or Drew Carey yeah. uh, Ray Romano, boom, 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 just different people that you were on the road with a week earlier in a condo, yeah, working in St. Louis suddenly I, were on Carson and then they were famous. It was yeah, it was an amazing time.
0: It was it, easier on the stage from everything you're saying and uh and easier with an audience less so i think in some respects than today behind the scenes because the only way to really pop that popcorn was to get on that one show the tonight show Mm -hmm. so that end of the funnel is so teeny and the top of the funnel is huge Nowadays, the top of the funnel is still huge, but the bottom's wider because you can get into podcasting, acting, sketch, blogging, TV of of any sort, writing. Now the pay scales haven't changed much, but you know, or are going down. So there's that. But there are opportunities there, I think, on a wider playing field. We backstage, you know, there was still a lot of uh, I wouldn't necessarily say. Backstabbing, but there was so much politicking going on. I think during our generation,
1: oh, no, that you no. had
0: to really kind of make sure you tried to get the right agent, tried to get a good manager, tried to finagle your way in, try to make sure that you were in a certain spot on the lineup, try to kiss somebody's ass. So you could. so there was a lot of that going on. I think perhaps more so than nowadays. I'm not sure, but I think so.
1: I, I think so, too. In fact, then, in fact, I came out to L.A. You were living in L.A. I came out right. to L.A. I stayed with you. Right. We were going to go to the comedy store. We went to the comedy store where you had you had already kind of worked your magic. Everybody knew knew who you were, all that shit. And I was so disturbed by the scene there and continued to be. It, it was just. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it just seemed like well, it's just like what you described. Everybody was so protective of what they had. Yeah. Anybody coming in here's a new guy. They would they would block you out. They would they would prevent you from seeing or making eye contact with Mitzi. Hey, come on. I yeah. Knew. It was hard. It
0: was uh, a threat to stage time, and the closer you you were to the type of comic they were, the more yeah. intense the competitiveness got. It was tough. It was too bad. Uh, but we both survived it.
1: We did. We did fine. Look okay. at us.
0: And how do you now, how do you get from the from boxing your way through the stand-up venues in LA to writing? Was was your first experience, Roseanne, story editor? Is that where you, you started, or how did you get behind how did you start writing?
1: Uh well, um <laughs> the uh Pat Paulson came through, uh, Denver and I, I, I was starstruck. Not only was he hysterical, but he was a very approachable guy. And so I like, I, I forced him to let me go on the road with him and open for him in some clubs around Colorado, up in the mountains. And we got to be, we spent a lot of time in the car and we got kind of close and that was in 88. And, and, uh, he, he, of course, was closely attached to the Smothers Brothers. And the Smothers Brothers was about to start a, uh, they did a show, they did a reunion show on CBS, like in 87 mm-hmm. or 86. And it was hugely popular. It, it it was a one-time thing, but the numbers were nuts. So CBS thought, well, we got to bring the show back. So they, they rebooted the Smothers Brothers show the way it was back in the 60s, with the same music and the same guests and the same everything, and Tom and Dick being Tom and Dick.
0: Wow! Uh, literally and 20 it was, years later, they 20
1: years later, and, and it did okay. But what it did for me was I got really close with Tom Smothers, and they took me on the road. I was their opening act for like seven years. Wow, which was, which was such a great gig. And, you know, I went from be, working in the clubs, working in Vegas and Atlantic City and on the road with them in big venues. It was quite cool. It was it was great. It was a time what of what a
0: kick and and uh, what a great way to get into those big rooms and just realize what that is and and it's such a different performing beast.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, you wear a suit. You're you know you have a you have a great backstage room with booze and food and. Uh, it's so professional and the Smothers Brothers, you know, their, their act was great. It was just great. And, uh, so I, I got to do that for the longest time and it was, uh, it couldn't happen at a better time because I just had kids and, uh, I didn't want to be on the road that much. I sure didn't want to do comedy clubs. I was getting kind of tired of that. Um, so I got to do that, but oh, so anyhow, I got to work on their, their show their their reboot show uh for several episodes in 88 and it was it was kind of a you know they were trying to reboot an old variety show and yeah they're it just didn't necessarily work and tom and dick brought on all their old friends tony orlando and Dawn and uh, patula clark Uh, you know they people that they loved and they honored and and it just it didn't necessarily get any new it didn't bring any new audience in i don't want to bad mouth yeah. it because it was a ball and uh yeah i got to work with some terrific writers but um
0: well uh, that's it, more it, it a, a, a production slash studio slash network a hurdle i think um you know yeah. and, and certainly perhaps uh, uh, the brothers themselves but you know to reboot that virtually 20 years later and say let's get the let's do the same thing. If there isn't a wink and a nod, and you know, or some slight separation from it, boy, you're asking for it. I mean, yeah. they, there should have been some people, certainly at the network, who were going, let's get some of at least you know Tom Selleck or one of our current stars to come on, and
1: you know, Jeff, yeah. they might have tried to do that. I can't really remember. uh I think Shelley Long. I think Shelley Long was on it, and that was like one of the young, more the younger actresses. Yeah. But um, so anyhow. But to fast forward to so that was that was my first actual WGA writing, game. and then but then when Roseanne, uh, who uh, we were all in Denver, we we're all very tight with Roseanne, and then she gets Carson, and then she gets her show like practically the next day, and she's right. and the show goes on, and it's huge. It's up there with Cosby the second it goes on. And she's somebody who
0: who may not that's not a figure of speech. She literally did the tonight show, blew the doors off, got asked over to the couch, and sometimes you can get asked over to the couch because they have to fill time or because it's planned or because something went wrong in the other scheduling and uh-huh. sometimes you get asked over the couch because there's a little bit of a scheduling issue. And then sometimes you get asked over to the couch on the old Tonight Show because Johnny was just so blown away he had to have you come over. And that's what happened. He was so blown away with Roseanne uh, and rightly so, it was a crushing set that she went over, sat down, crushed more and then literally within a week had management and agency and and I think within two weeks had... Uh, the beginnings of a deal, if not a signed deal already. So that's not not an exaggeration.
1: That was also back when they would see, you know, that they used to come to the comedy clubs to find the next sitcom stars. And somebody like Roseanne, her act was right there. You look at it and you go, my God, this is a show. Yeah, It became a show. But that happened to a lot of stand-up comics. Yeah. You know, the same thing happened to Drew and uh, I'm going to blank. Romano. Ray, uh,
0: certainly Tim, uh, certain Tim, Tim Allen. Allen. Uh, Although Tim did not uh, go through the Tonight Show. He could not get the Tonight Show.
1: Stylistically,
0: right. they, they just didn't think he was going to add up on the show, so he went a different route. He right. really used his Showtime special, his first one, and smart management, uh, Baker Messina and Jimmy Miller and those right. guys took that, and I think he may have been the first guy who did not have to make that tonight show ladder in order to get a pilot deal.
1: That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, but most um, everybody else,
0: Brett Butler, everybody came up and you know, were, were, were uh Paul uh Rodriguez. You know, everybody was hammering that. It's it was the yeah. way to get it done,
1: yeah. Um Shirley Temple, I don't know if she did yeah. tonight show or not. She she might have done it, but uh yeah. it um Oh, that was I was gonna th- that was leading me to something else so about Roseanne.
0: So what so Roseanne comes on the air, she gets her thing, and you are able to write on the show. Well, no, I start
1: I start begging her for a job on that show like almost immediately. And it took the longest time. I mean, I literally I snuck on I, I was in LA. It might have been when I was with you, Jeff, uh staying at your place. Um I had written a spec script and I'm sure, I'm sure it was horrible, but I snuck onto the Radford lot. That's when back when the, the Radford lot that is now studios used to be like woods <laughs> and they, they shot uh, Gilligan's Island there, but they also shot um, Falcon Quest. Falcon Quest? Falcon and I, Quest. and I sneak on, I, I go between some gates and I walk up to where I think Roseanne's office might be with this spec script. And I get there and everybody's on stage and I'm too uh, timid to walk onto the stage. But I left the script on Roseanne's uh, couch (laughs) and thinking, I'm in, I'm in. Uh, And they did eventually find it and they did eventually get in touch with me. But it was at a time, you know, like uh, that show started not having that show got so big so fast that I, I can't imagine what the energy of that place was like day to day. They were that's back when they were cranking out 24, 26 episodes a a year, something like that. And, um, uh, you know, I'm sure Rose's head was still spinning uh, just because of all the fame and all the work and everything. But anyhow, eventually cut to uh, Tom Arnold comes into the picture. And Tom, another Minnesota guy, is the one who uh, eventually made the call to say, hey, uh, uh, Roseanne, wants you on the staff, uh, which was great. It was that's, terrific. That's huge. Yeah. But I didn't get on the staff till I think 94, which was like their season six or seven. So I came on fairly late in the run. Uh, and they hired Matt and I, and they they we didn't know at the time they were doing this, but they made us a team to save money.
0: You and so Matt Berry? Yes. Another and, great uh, Denver comic, who originally from New York. Uh, who then went on to do um, uh, what's the Wisteria Lane show? Damn
1: it! Oh yeah, um, uh, that one.
0: Desperate Housewives.
1: Desperate Housewives with Mark Cherry. Yeah.
0: Uh, so so you're in now. It's like season six, and now there was chaos in that room, that always resulted in tremendous product on the screen. But knowing, and there were a couple of other Minneapolis guys in that room. Joel Madison was there. Adant Foster, I believe, was there. And Sid Youngers was there mm-hmm. in some capacity. Now, I don't know if they were still around in season six or seven. But I know that Tom, for all his craziness during that period of his life and his relationship with Roseanne, had the foresight to go, I'm going to use the power." that Roseanne has with this successful show to nudge that, keep nudging the network out and get the people in this writer's room who I know can write Roseanne's voice. All those Midwest guys, the Denver guys, the Minneapolis guys, mm-hmm. there probably eight people from Denver and Minneapolis in that room. And then I'm sure some, you know, a showrunner and, a you know, some... Guys, some veterans who knew how to write actual television, but to have the guys in who knew her voice, that's a, that's a smart, smart thing on Tom's part.
1: It was. Well, they wanted to they wanted to stack the room with with stand up comics because it was a very joke heavy show. And, and Roseanne just flew through jokes. If a joke killed at the table. There's it would get thrown out the next day for a better joke, and so they just had joke writers. I think when I Matt and I came on, the other stand up comics were uh, like Norm and uh, Rich Scheidner and uh, uh Bob Nickman, uh, Norm McDonald, like Bob Nickman, and Rich Scheidner. There, there, there were so many, there were a dozen stand up comics on the show that were just brought in with no television experience, just to sit in rooms and rewrite jokes, rewrite jokes, rewrite jokes, right. You know, for every punchline, write five more punchlines. And although it was kind of tedious, it was great practice because my whole life was in sitcoms and sitcoms are joke driven. You know, it's set up punchline, set up punchline is how you get through a script and uh, having been on Roseanne doing that was terrific uh, way to learn writing you know at the um, same
0: time do you feel like you were absorbing story and how to break a story and how to decide whether is an a story or a b story uh were you keeping your eye peeled for that for the for the writers in the room who were doing that and knew how to do that
1: I think so yeah and absorb is a good word because you you know you're in that all the time and you're paying really close attention and little by little, you start to understand what a good story is and, and how to do that and, how, you know, how is, all the beats that make up a story. But it does kind of just happen one day. It's like, oh, shoot, I know how to do this. But it takes so long. It, it's not something that you, you learn. And, you know, there's, a, there's programs around town that you can go and you can get in a writing class and learn right. how to do it. That would probably be advantageous. But when Matt and I went on to Roseanne, we were both fairly old. We were in our mid to late 30s. And that's really old to have your first staff job. Right. Um, but we had the experience of, you know, we were both parents. We, we were married and both had kids. So suddenly you have experience to draw from that is very vital. Right. Right. And then several years later, you learn how to write a story, and then it, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Uh, so if you can
0: somehow survive 15 years without anybody discovering that it's all a ruse. <laughs> <Well, we've, laughs> <we've, we've laughs> so when does it go off? Because you go from there to things like Grace Under Fire, Dharma and Greg. Greg, yeah, I think suddenly Susan yeah. squeezes in there.
1: Yeah, I what, was the what, grim what, that whole period You're writing, I think, correct? Yes. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I kind of worked my way up and. Um, Dharma and Greg, I don't know, I was I was learning. Uh, I was learning and learning and learning, but it wasn't until Dharma and Greg came late in my career, but it was also it was going to be the last season of Dharma and Greg. Every show that I'd gotten on for the longest time had already been predetermined. It was the last season. So you're going on to a show with no hope of turning it into a, a you know, six year career.
0: Uh, and, no, and so you're talking about like the, the naked truth. So you get on the naked truth, and they go, "Ed, last season."
1: <laughs> well, they the naked truth was in turmoil because uh, I don't think any of the actors really wanted to do it, and the show wasn't doing so hot. But NBC had everybody under contract, so right. everybody was kind of doing doing it under duress, at least on the writer's side. But now it was, was, was you know, I honey Believe
0: was, John Regie was in that room, was he not?
1: Was yes he did he came along later uh and they were and writers were just it was just a revolving door and it was just one of those jobs that there was a ping pong table and you played ping pong till dinner time and then after dinner you'd knuckle down and start working on the next day's draft it was just one of those shows where that was the schedule so every night was midnight and it was an exhausting way to try to write a show but you know it did we, we did it it was okay it was Working with Taya was great. She was marvelous. Holland Taylor was on that. She was out of this world. So is there a part of you
0: that I should say, how is the internal emotional balancing act? Because there has to be a part of you that's like, this is insane. We should be able to write a script, a better script in a shorter period of time in a more efficient way. And at the same time, there's another part of you going, I'm meeting quality people, including including quality writers who are going through a revolving door, and quality actors and stuff. That kind of stuff drove me insane. I could not balance it. the The writing side of it drove me so crazy that it couldn't get done. That I, I, I what little social skills I had, dropped away, and I I, I I couldn't meet anybody to do anything. I did not network. Put it that way. <laughs>
1: How were you able uh, to survive that? Well, I didn't have a lot of choice financially. I, I, I couldn't up and leave. I had to sit around for however long it was going to take. And, uh, it's it just NBC and, uh, Brillstein Gray, I think was the studio. Right. They were just being real wishy-washy about the scripts and the shows and okaying stuff and throwing things out. And so, but that's not uncommon in sitcom writing. I mean, uh, to, uh, you know, to go to a, a Wednesday run through after a Tuesday table read, and the run through stinks. And ev- they had the showrunner comes back from notes and says, "We have to do something else. None of this works. We have to start over." And that's that's crushing because now you have to break and write a story in a in a manner, you know and have it ready for the next day for the actors to come in and start rehearsing. Wow. So, uh, but you know, you mentioned something about you know what do you do in that situation it's it's pretty much it, it's on the shoulders of the showrunner the showrunner is the person as you know who takes the who takes the bombardment they're kind of standing there alone and uh, attempting to please everybody above the line the actors and the studio and everybody and all of their writing staff and with wanting to do the best for the crew too to make sure that they aren't working their brains out and uh, getting home at a decent time. Uh, so I don't know why that, that, I don't know why I started lamenting about showrunners and what they have to go through. But that's a tough job. Showrunner well, is Well, because a really-
0: you were, I think you were absorbing it at that time. I think it was, I think that first of all, there was something inside of you uh, that you were drawn to that. There was an affinity, perhaps it wasn't even conscious yet just your personality and what you had naturally in your head where, I mean, you didn't pop up one day and go, Hey, I can run the show. You just are, you just had a personality, I believe, that lent itself to being a diplomatic, uh, but effective showrunner. And you be- you
1: began to feed that. That's honestly what I think.
0: That's Roofed very wrong.
1: flattering for you to say. And I think it is, I, I, well, especially as, you know, being a standup comic all those years, you were the you were the one in charge. You you write and direct and perform in your own show, and uh, if you do it well, you you make a living, um, uh, which you and I both did. I think we did okay. Yeah. Uh, but and when you're on a show, you you sit back there and you go, you know, like if you're the new guy at Target, you go, I could run this store. How hard is it? I I could. I know so much more than the guy that's running the store. And then you get a chance to be a showrunner. It's like holy shit! I there is nowhere to hide. There's you don't get any shade from anybody else when you're a showrunner. You have to answer questions all day long, and, and questions big and small. And you you know you get to the point like I, you can't ever say I don't know because it's your job to know. And if you don't know, you better pretend you know, or else uh, you're gonna piss people off. So. <laughs> But you know, when Matt and I got on Roseanne, we 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 were looking at that, going, how hard can this be? And then both of us got to find out, oh, it's really hard. It's quite hard.